You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We rely on the financial support of listeners like yourself to keep going. If you'd like to support diverse voices on your radio, go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow, Slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Here we are, back again on the Anarchist World This Week, broadcasting live on 3cr.org.au. This program is podcast, so if you get a call from a spruker wanting your money, talk to them, put us on hold and then listen to the podcast later on. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. And if you wonder what Anarchy is all about, no, it's not what you think it's about. It's a really Boring, pedestrian, little political, social, cultural movement. It's based on a simple concept which human beings have been striving for since they uh, left Africa, who knows when. It's a very simple concept. Anarchos without rulers. It's about creating a society without rulers. How do you create a society without rulers? You share power. And direct democracy is one mechanism, not the only one. And you share wealth because inequalities in power and wealth which give religious leaders, secular leaders, megalomaniacs like me the ability... Well, no, I don't actually have any followers, so I'm not a megalomaniac. (laughs) Gives us the ability to alter people's lives dramatically. So if you're in the struggle to devolve power, that's share power, and the struggle to share wealth, well then... You're an anarchist, whether you know it or not. And as I said, it's all about repetition. It's not, you know, it's simple stuff, which hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, have given their lives for over thousands of years. That struggle for equality, which is part and parcel of the human experience. Now, I have a huge expose. You are listening to a person who you shouldn't be listening to. Yesterday... Was it the day before we got our just desserts? Not we, public interest before corporate interest, pipsy.net. Now, you will not believe this. In an era when the Roman Catholic Church has been filled by pedophiles and been responsible for the suicide of hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, adults and children around the world because of their nefarious activities, when the interim report from the Royal Commission into Nursing Homes say it is a shame, a national shame, when, you know, Westpac disobeys the law 23 million times and the director 
continues to hold on to his job till next year. You know, when when we see all the things that we see, I have now, we have now been exposed for what we are, public interest before corporate interest. Now, public interest before corporate interest is an organisation. Now, we are trying to register the federal political party. And if you've been holding back because you think we're not radical enough, well, boys and girls, as far as Facebook is concerned, we are the pits. We got our marching orders yesterday. All my little Facebook pages, Joseph Toscano, Toscano for the public, defend and extend public housing, public housing, everybody's, it's still up there, but there are no connections to any material from pipsy.net. It's all been removed. And as you know, Facebook is a $600 billion industry. It's free, so they can do what they like. You can't appeal. You're given no notice. But somehow we do not meet community standards. We do not meet community standards. A political, social, cultural organisation which wants to put the interests of the many before the interests of the few does not meet community standards. Am I outraged? No. I am pleased. I'm actually jumping up and down. They're taking notice. It looks like we're beginning to annoy people as we get edged closer and closer to registering as a federal political party. So the ball is in your court. We're looking for another 140 members so we can apply for registration sometime early next year. So if you want to be part of an organisation that's been banned by Facebook, and there are many of them, for the most who knows what reason this is your chance this is your chance to play radical politics you can download now the website's still going that's pipsy.net and the youtube channel is still there public interest before corporate interest so don't despair this is just facebook and community standards so give us uh, you can either ring me for a yeah i'm not gonna you can ring me for an application form 0439 395 489 0439-395-489 or you can download the application form from Pipsy, P-I-B-C-I dot net. That's Pipsy, P-I-B-C-I dot net. Join public interest before corporate interest today because it looks like it is one of those organisations that you must join. If you want radical, you know, Stripes on your T-shirt, tattooed, public interest before corporate interest on the back of your back and who knows what will happen. Maybe they'll take you away. So I'm so pleased, so pleased. We've finally broken through the ceiling the of indifference because we are now seen as a potential threat to the status quo. Now, as you all know, regular listeners of the program, for the last 18 years, this is our 18th year, could be our 19th year, we have been holding, reclaim the radical spirit of the Eureka celebrations, reclaim the radical spirit of the Eureka rebellion celebrations in Ballarat since 2002. And once again, we are hosting the reclaim the radical spirit of the Eureka rebellion celebrations. Now, for those of you who can't make it, 
The Dawn Ceremony, which starts at 4am, will be broadcast live. That's right, broadcast live from 4am to 6am on Community Radio Station 3CR 855 on your AM dial. It will also be streaming live, so you can hear it anywhere in the world on 3cr.org.au. 3cr.org.au. Now, I'll go through the program, and then I want to talk extensively about why we celebrate Eureka. Why I think it's one of the most important days, not just in Australian history, but world history. And that's a big statement to make when you see all the things that have occurred around the world in the last, you know, who knows what. Now, the program is very simple. You don't have to ring anybody. You can come in and out of the program as you like. And that's what people do. Some come to the 4am ceremony, some come to the dinner at night, some come to everything and a few come to the, uh, and many come to the events during the day. But it is a long day, so I suggest you get a bit of sleep the day before. It is a long day. It goes from 4am to 10pm. This year it'll be on a Tuesday, Tuesday the 3rd of December 2019, marks the 165th anniversary of the Eureka Rebellion. And as in previous years, you will find it quite sad about the lack of interests from the Ballarat City Council and the good citizens of Ballarat. And it's not their fault, because for many, many years, uh, authorities have been trying to downplay the significance of the Eureka Rebellion, uh, describing it as a revolt by small business people <laughs> to some type of racist, you know, uh, con- conflagration. So both the right and the left have got it wrong, as usual. Uh, what do you expect? We're anarchists. We don't ex- accept the definitions of the right and the left, do we? So here we go. It's up to you. Come and join us. It'll be a great day. Something you can tell your great-grandchildren. That's if you survive that long. All right, 4 a.m. So it'll be held at, we start at the Eureka Stockade site, which is the corner of Stall and Eureka Street in Ballarat. Stall and Eureka Street in Ballarat. Now, all this stuff is on the Facebook page, Joseph Toscano. It's also on the Anarchist Media Institute website, anarchistmedia.org. It's all there if you want to follow it up. But as I know, many of our listeners, you know, kind of run away from computers and I understand why considering what happened in the last 48 hours. Um, I think, I mean, I'll go through the whole program and then I'll discuss why it's important, Eureka. Why it's important 165 years later. Why it's important to reclaim that radical spirit of the Eureka Rebellion. 4am to 6am, dawn ceremony, Eureka Park, next to the old Eureka Memorial at the corner of Stall and Eureka Streets in Ballarat. 6am, communal breakfast. You bring your own food and drinks. Obviously, some people bring a bit extra and some bring a bit less, but there's food for all. So bring along your own food and drinks. 6am, breakfast at Eureka Hall, which is right next to the site of the Eureka ceremony. Then comes the hard work. 9am, we march from Eureka Park to Bakery Hill, 
to reaffirm the Eureka Oath. And between 9.30am to 10.30am, and it's usually, you know, sometimes a little bit late, that doesn't matter, presentation of the Eureka Australia Day medals at Bakery Hill. This year there'll be six medals presented, uh, actually five women and one man. That's right. And the Eureka Medal is basically awarded to people you may never heard of and most likely have never heard of who've devoted their lives to the struggle to create a fairer, juster, that's not a word, a fairer society based on justice. At around 11am we gather, we walk through the town centre, through the mall, down to the uh, Ballarat Town Hall for the Eureka Stump Orations. And once again, we will see that the Eureka flag is not being flown on the main flagpole on top of the Ballarat City Hall. The Ballarat City Council for the last 165 years has refused, point blank, despite multiple attempts by us and other people, to fly the Eureka flag on the, on the main flagpole on top of the Ballarat City Hall to pay their respects to the men and women who died and who were involved in that rebellion which, which continues to have reverberations around this country. Then from there at around 11.30am we walk to the old Ballarat Cemetery to pay our respects to all those who died in the Eureka battle. And we encourage you to bring flowers. This is one of the most moving moments. We actually walk to the cemetery, go to the mass grave, where about a half of the men who died during that faithful morning on the 3rd of December are buried. From there, we walk back to Ballarat Trades Hall at uh, 24 Camp Street for, for a light lunch, which the Ballarat Trades Hall usually provides for us, and then after a light lunch and a bit of a rest, we walk back to the Eureka Centre, which there's no admission charge on Eureka Day, to look at the Eureka flag and speak about the Eureka flag. Afternoon tea in Eureka Park, where people basically flake out and have a sleep on the grass. And at 7pm, another highlight of the day, the annual Reclaim the Radical Spirit of the Eureka Rebellion annual dinner from 7pm to 10pm, Tuesday the 3rd of December at the Queen's Head Hotel, 146 Humphrey Street, North Ballarat. And uh, music and entertainment will be provided by West Papuan uh, resistant activists based in Victoria who are coming up, busloads coming up uh, that evening to entertain people who come to the dinner and also the bard who comes all the way from northern uh, New South Wales and he'll be singing one of his uh, original songs about the pikeman's dog. There's no admission charge. You pay for your own food and drinks. We, uh, the, uh, the room holds about 90. If you want to guarantee a seat, give me a ring on 0439 395 489. 0439395489. Most people, uh, well, many people just take their chances. There's a uh, seating for 90, and obviously we can 
fit in a few extra. So come along, should be a great night. And our guest speaker is the manager of the newly revamped Eureka Centre, Mr Anthony Camp, who, sorry, Anthony Cam, C-A-M-M, who will be speaking about the Eureka Centre 2020 and beyond. It's very important that this centre is kept going. I mean, they tried to change the nature of the Eureka Remedy by making it into some type of centre for parliamentary democracy, which failed abysmally. The Ballarat City Council will be very keen to close down the Eureka Centre because it's not a money-making concern as far as they're concerned. But if they close it down, the Eureka flag goes back to the Ballarat Art Gallery and that's the sticking point. If the flag wasn't there, they would have sold it years ago. So come along, join us Tuesday the 3rd of December, 4am to 10pm and uh, have a great day. And that's what it's about, having a great day, reclaiming that radical spirit. So what is Ballarat all about? What is it all about? What is Eureka all about? Despite uh, millions of words being published and written about the, this pivotal event in Australian history, so few words have been written about what I know, think, about the central themes of the Eureka Rebellion. Direct democracy, direct action, solidarity and internationalism. Now, everybody thinks that they know what the Eureka Rebellion is about, but very few people actually bother to look at the facts and the history. The 165th anniversary of the Eureka Revolt provides an opportunity to reassess the significance of what occurred in Ballarat in 1854. It's both tragic and ironic that in 2019, 165 years later, the events that have helped to shape the consciousness of both a people and a nation are still dismissed by many as a business, as a revolt by small business people about mining licences. Now, the essence of the Eureka Rebellion, direct democracy, direct action, solidarity and internationalism, is incorporated in the Eureka Oath. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. An oath that was taken by around 500 poorly armed miners late Wednesday afternoon on the 29th of November 1854 at Bakery Hill in Ballarat. At the foot of the very same flagpole, that saw the Southern Cross first raised at a monster meeting of over 12,000 miners and their supporters on that day. I think it's important that around the few activities that are planned to remember the 165th anniversary celebrations of the Eureka Rebellion by the authorities which want us to forget that story, is both acknowledged and celebrated. And that's what we do during the 3rd of December. We both acknowledge and celebrate those pivotal elements in the Eureka Rebellion. Direct democracy. It's only natural 
that people who are denied participation in the decision-making process of the society they live in develop their own processes. The miners at Ballarat, confronted by a government that taxed them but denied them the right to participate in the decision-making processes, soon developed their own organisations. The influx of humanity that flooded in Victoria that tried to eke out their fortunes from the mining shafts at Ballarat came from around the world. That's right, they were refugees, asylum seekers, migrants. Faced with a ruthless government and a corrupt bureaucracy, they soon formed their own organisations. Men and women from all corners of the globe faced a common enemy. Old hatreds based on politics, race and religion were put aside in the struggle against a more immediate and dangerous enemy. Men and women who had participated in the 1848 European Revolutionary Movement, Irish nationalists, English chartists and the apolitical who had just come there to make their fortune coalesced into a new organisation that represented the interests of both miners and small business, the Ballarat Reform League. Talk about creating an organisation, a reform league, became a reality on the 11th of November 1854 at a monster meeting which was held at Bakery Hill. The league, the Ballarat Reform League, was born as a result of ordinary people taking matters into their own hands and directly making decisions about what was important to them. They did this through direct democratic principles and objectives that recognised that people are the only legitimate source of political power. Not the state, not the bureaucracy, not the armed forces, not the corporate sector, but the people. The meeting on the 11th of November 1854 adopted a number of principles and objectives that clearly challenged the power of the state. We were seeing the evolution of a society within a society, a dual power situation. That it is the inalienable right of every citizen to have a voice in making the laws he is called on to obey. That taxation without representation is tyranny. And this is a direct quote from the Ballarat Reform League Charter. That being as the people have been hereto unrepresented in the Legislative Council of the Colony of Victoria, they have been tyrannised over and it becomes their duty as well as interest to resist and if necessary to remove the irresponsible power which so tyrannises over them. That this colony has hitherto been governed by paid officials upon the false assumption that law is greater than justice because, forsooth, it was made by them and their friends and admirably suits their selfish ends and narrow-minded views. It is the object of the League to place power in the hands of responsible representatives of the people to frame wholesome laws and carry on an honest government. 
that it is not the wish of the League to effect an immediate separation of this colony from the parent country. If equal laws and equal rights are dealt out to the whole free community, but that if Queen Victoria continues to act upon indirectly dictating obnoxious laws for the colony under the assumed authority of the Royal Prerogative, the Reform League will endeavour to supersede such Royal Prerogative as the people are the only legitimate source of all political power. Such a powerful revolutionary radical statement. Between the formation of the Ballot Reform League at Bakery Hill on the 11th of December 1854 and the destruction of the of the Lee, of the movement in a sea of blood on the 3rd of December 1854, the mass meeting played a pivotal and central role in the Eureka movement. All power evolved from mass meetings. The legitimacy of the government of the movement's leaders and its aims and objectives related to the direct participation of diggers, storekeepers and inhabitants in mass meetings. Delegates with limited mandates were appointed or elected to carry out the wishes of those present at the mass meetings. Monster meetings were a feature of life in Ballarat. On the 1st of November 1854, over 15,000 inhabitants gathered at Bakery Hill, and that's from a population of 25,000, to protest the arrest of Andrew McIntyre, Thomas Fletcher and Henry Yorkey for complicity in the burning of Bentley's Hotel. It was both natural and appropriate the Ballarat Reform League was created through structures that miners were familiar with. Mass meetings allowed the people affected by decision to make that decision. The next monster meeting occurred on Wednesday the 29th of November. Under the newly hoisted Southern Cross flag, over 12,000 people gathered to listen to reports from the delegates they had appointed to raise their grievances with Governor Hotham. Unhappy with their delegates' lack of success with the Governor and their violent encounter the previous day with the 12th Regiment, participants in the mass meeting were ready to escalate their struggle. The League's division between a moral and a physical force component gave people a stark choice. The diggers, keen to resist the increasing military presence on the goldfields, chose the physical path. Humphrey, the president they had elected on the 11th of November, had lost what moral authority he had. The events that occurred on the Ballarat gravel pits the following day, when the authorities continued their licence hunts with the aid of the military forces that had been sent to Ballarat, was the last straw. The diggers who had camped at the Eureka diggings formed armed military divisions to protect and defend arrested diggers and fight to defend the inalienable rights and liberties they believed they were born with. Ironically, few participants in the Eureka Rebellion realised what they had created was an embryonic society based on direct democratic principles. Their short and long-term political aims were fashioned around the need to participate in a parliamentary process they had been denied access to. A process that gave credence to the idea that the democratic process is limited to people casting a ballot. 
every few years to elect representatives to make decisions on their behalf. A few entertained a more radical vision of democracy. Understanding the significance of what was happening, Henry Seacombe, the editor of the Ballarat Times, wrote when the Ballarat Reform League was formed, the league was not more or less than the germ of Australian independent and it had the potential to become an Australian Congress. So let's not, let's not think of these people as, you know, simple-minded folk who didn't know what they do. These were refugees, asylum seekers, migrants, who'd escaped the tyranny of the class structures and the authoritarianism in Northern Europe and Southern Europe, and had come to Ballarat to create, had come to Victoria to create a new life. Direct action, the second most important principle of the Eureka Rebellion. Direct action in its simplest forms means that people believe they are able to manage their affairs better than those who are doing it for them. Many of the Eureka miners had lost all faith in both the bureaucracy and the colonial authorities. Faced with daily attacks from a bureaucracy that was actively pursuing state policies that threatened both the miners' interest in their safety, the scene was set for a struggle that challenged the colonial authorities' power to use force to impose the state's will on the Ballarat Dickens. I mean, the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party in China and in Hong Kong is based on their ability to have a monopoly on the use of force. And it's the same all over the world. It's the same in Australia. The state exercises a monopoly on the use of force. Direct action practised by the Ballarat miners was about challenging the state's monopoly on the use of force. The ability of the Ballarat miners to challenge the state was based on the need of citizens of a frontier society who were actively pursuing a policy of dispossessing the local indigenous population through the use of force to have access to firearms. In 1854, Victoria, the state's traditional monopoly on the use of force was undermined by the need of people living in a frontier society to have ready access to firearms. The diggers' ability to form their own organisations the need for them to sort out their differences outside of a corrupt judicial system and their ability to formulate demands among themselves through direct democratic processes created a climate where the creation of a dual power situation became a distinct possibility. The only thing that stood between the Eureka miners controlling their own affairs was the military might of the British colonial authorities. Faced with the possibility of a rebellion spreading to other Victorian goldfields and possibly even Melbourne itself, Governor Hotham, a naval disciplinarian, was appointed governor to quickly lance the social car buncle growing on the goldfields. A direct confrontation between the much-hated and poorly armed Joes that's the coppers, who were using 1840 constabulary carbines and triangular socket bayonets, would have resulted in a quick rout of the foot and mount police, a confrontation with the British 
empire and the British army was another matter. As the challenge to the colonial authorities' power increased, Governor Hotham began to flood the area with well-armed and disciplined British troops. Both the 40th and 12th Regiment were armed with more modern 1842 percussion muskets, which could fire two rounds a minute. The 40th Regiment mounted military force carried light cavalry swords, 1844 carbines and single-shot percussion pistols. On the 29th of November... 1854, around 500 poorly armed miners gathered at Bakery Hill. They marched to Eureka and set up the blockade. They spent the next few days procuring arms, electing their own officers and setting up a hastily erected enclosure. Saturday the 2nd of December was spent drilling and procuring horses and arms. About 1,500 armed men were in the enclosure that evening. By the time the 12th and 40th Regiment and Foot and Mounted Police attacked the stockade the next morning, the number of miners in the stockade had dwindled to around 120. The miners soon gave way to the overwhelming firepower directed at them. Major General Sir Robert Nicholl, who I'm sure there are many roads and reserves named after this gentleman at Ballarat, arrived at Ballarat two days after the battle with the rest of the 12th and 40th regiments as well as a naval contingent that had two six-pounder field pieces and two 12-pounded howitzers. The comprehensive military victory on the Ballarat goldfields did not spell the defeat or end of direct action. Paradoxically, the concentration of so much military power in Ballarat made Hotham's administration extremely vulnerable. 37 Marines from the recently arrived HMS Phantom and the HMS Electra were positioned to guard the Treasury buildings in Spring Street, Melbourne. Fifth, one, one and a half thousand special constables were sworn in to maintain order in Melbourne. Protest meetings that attracted thousands of people were held in Melbourne and on the gold fields in the days following the slaughter. The Ballarat miners' decision to directly challenge state power by challenging the state's monopoly on the use of force had paid dividends. Faced with a restless population that was willing to direct was willing to directly confront state power, faced with the problem of not having the military muscle to assert its authority and faced with a major loss of credibility, the colonial authorities were forced by the miners' use of direct action to find a political solution to a problem to which there was no military solution. And that's the key, isn't it? Internationalism. Another cornerstone of the Eureka Rebellion. Now, over the last few decades, we've seen some really unsavoury types, you know, take on the Eureka Rebellion as, you know, their white man's, whatever, you know, uh, crusade. And it's just so tragic that so few people really understand the, the nature of, of the Eureka Rebellion, internationalism. It's acknowledged by most historians and commentators the diggers who flocked to the goldfields came from all corners of the world. 
What is forgotten is that although the miners were predominantly of European origin, many came from other parts of the British Empire and the rest of the world. Deeply held views about race and religion were watered down in the face of a common enemy. Irrespective of where they came from, their race or religion, all the miners felt the brunt of the colonial authorities' attempts to extract the maximum amount of cash from them. Their common experiences at the hands of the authorities created a culture where race and religion were not important issues. The only people excluded from the process were the remnants of the original indigenous population. Carboni, one of the leaders of the rebellion, was one of the few miners who, in his pantomime, Gilburnia, written while he was awaiting trial in Melbourne for high treason in early 1855, promoted the idea that the original inhabitants were as much, if not more so, victims of the British colonial authorities than the miners were. The international nature of the Eureka movement is highlighted in the Eureka Oath. We. It doesn't say white people, it doesn't say men, it doesn't say women, it says we swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. And just just in case you think the Southern Cross is a religious analogy, it's not. The miners who lived in tent cities, who weren't entertained, you know, with uh, TV and the internet and the list goes on and on, where they lay on their backs, saw the Southern Cross in the sky. The Southern Cross was a constellation that cannot be seen in the Northern Hemisphere. It proved to them they were in a different world, and in a different world where they didn't want the class structure of the old world. We swear with the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. In the period when God... Queen and country were the dominant ideological themes of the period. The oath began with the word we. Everybody on the gold fields, irrespective of where they came from, their race or nationality, were welcomed into the movement. Some of the most prominent participants in the movement did not use English as their first language. Raphael Caboni, the unofficial historian of the movement, who on the first of anniversary of the Eureka Rebellion was giving away his book about the rebellion at the site of the rebellion, and Frederick Verne, the German who was a rival of Peter Laylor for the leadership of the movement, did not use English as their first language. Three of the 13 members of the Council of War for the defence of the miners, Edward Fonan from... Prussia, Raphael Caboni from Ubini in Italy and Frederick Van Verne from Germany came from non-English-speaking parts of the world. John Manning, Thomas Hayes, Patrick Curtin and Peter Lalo some of the prominent, were some of the prominent Irish nationalist activists in the Eureka Rebellion. Thomas Kennedy was from Scotland and James McGill, the second in command, came from the United States. Men and women from non-English speaking backgrounds as well as non-British English speakers who appeared among the list who were killed and wounded at Eureka and who were tried for high treason for their participation in the battle in 1854. Of the 13 men and acquitted for high treason, 
John Joseph, the first one tried, was a black American slave born in New York. Raphael Caboni was an Italian from Ubino in Italy. Jacob Sorison was a Jew. Jan Venick hailed from Holland. James McPhee Campbell was a black man from Kingston, Jamaica. Michael Tui, Timothy Hayes, John Cleland came from Ireland, while Thomas Dignam, the only native born among the 13, um, was born in Sydney. Irish, Prussians, as well as Canadian, Lieutenant Ross made up the list of those killed while fighting at the Eureka Stockade. Two Italians feature among the names of those massacred after the battle whose names do not appear in any monuments. The, the international nature of the Eureka movement is one of its most important elements. The miners faced with a common enemy, the hated colonial authorities, the hated British Empire, joined together in a movement that included people from non-English-speaking parts of the world as well as different races and religions. The hatreds that would be expected to normally divide people were put aside in the common struggle to destroy a system that made all their lives a misery. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other. What a wonderful statement. Truly by each other. Solidarity. What we've seen in this country over the last 30 years is legislation being passed through successive parliaments to destroy the power of trade unions to act in solidarity, in solidarity with the people they represent. Solidarity is one of the central themes of the Eureka Rebellion. Individual miners could never have hoped to achieve what was achieved at Eureka. Solidarity between all the major players on the goldfields, irrespective of their race, nationality, religion, whether they made their livelihoods from digging up the ground or providing goods and services to the miners, was an important ingredient in the mix that allowed them to resist the colonial authorities' plans to restrict and remove what few rights and liberties people living on the goldfield were able to exercise. The participants in the Eureka Rebellion understood the importance of solidarity. The central role that solidarity played was outlined in the Eureka Oath and in the actions the participants in the rebellion took to protect each other from the Clown Authority's actions. Digger licence hunts by the police were met with stones and the occasional gunshot. Every time dig arrested diggers were taken away, fined and imprisoned, the anger on the goldfields increased. The local newspapers, especially Henry Seacombe's Ballarat Times, threw their support behind the diggers. The Ballarat Times printing presses were used to produce many of the flyers that were posted up around Ballarat advertising the monster meetings that were held at Bakery Hill. The diggers were especially upset when 10 of their number were singled out and arrested for burning down Bentley's Hotel. Three were eventually charged and imprisoned for their role in the riot which led to the burning down of the hotel. Governor Hotham, the naval disciplinarian, well aware that discontent was not just limited to Ballarat and that he faced a possible insurrection on the goldfields, did his best to ensure the better-armed Americans did not join the revolt. 
The Americans' favourable treatment before the courts, before the revolt, and the lack of charges laid against those Americans like James McGill, the deputy commander of the revolt, reinforced people's opinion that a deal had been done between the American consul and Hotham, which resulted in only a few of the better-armed Americans being involved in the Eureka Rebellion. As injustice piled upon injustice, as inquiry after inquiry didn't come up with any real answers, as the licence hunts intensified and the military took an active part in the hunts and as the official corruption increased on the goldfields, the miners were forced to rely on themselves. Solidarity became more and more important. Faced with a network of government spies and government attempts to use the legal system, the military to put down the uprest on the goldfields, many of the people working the claims and providing goods and services to those on the barrack diggings were forced to form their own organisations, arm themselves and eventually use these arms to protect themselves against the state. The situation at Ballarat progressed to armed rebellion because those living in Ballarat were concerned about their neighbours' safety as well as their own. Their shared oppression and the inability and unwillingness of the colonial authorities to resolve their concerns, the daily injustices meted out to individuals within their community by hostile and indifferent administration provide the spark to convince the miners the only way the colonial authorities would take notice of them and their grievances were burying their differences and working together as a single united movement that believed an injury to one was an injury to all. There are a lot of interesting aspects of the Eureka Rebellion. It should never have happened. Now, Victoria had been colonised in the most brutal fashion and by 1854, of the over almost 200,000 Aboriginal people that had been colonised this land for over 60,000 years had been slaughtered and fewer than 2,000 remained. Slaughtered. And what were they slaughtered for? They were slaughtered so squatters could raise sheep and export wool. Tens of thousands slaughtered to raise sheep. And when the Eureka Rebellion occurred in 1854, 700 squatters owned all of Victoria. 700. And they dominated the Legislative Council. When the first gold was discovered, it was attempted to be hidden. But when the discovery got out, the Legislative Council passed laws which were designed to prevent their poorly paid workers and indentured servants from going to the gold field. So instead of applying a tax to the gold that was extracted from the ground, what they decided was to apply a tax to each individual miner. To a significant degree, the Ballarat Rebellion was born from that legislative framework where the squatters were attempting to protect their interests, interests they had acquired through the slaughtering in the most inhumane manner of tens of thousands of Indigenous Victorians. And it's quite strange, isn't it, that 165 years later we're still 
negotiating a treaty. But that's a different matter. But getting back to the why reclaim the radical spirit of the Eureka Rebellion? Well, this spirit has been instrumental in many of the movements that have occurred in this country that have led to profound changes. To a significant degree, the legislative agenda that occurred after the Ballarat Rebellion was a radical agenda which improved the lives of thousands, if not tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And that radical agenda would never have occurred without that rebellion. And it's quite extraordinary to think that many of the leaders of the rebellion, within 12 months of the rebellion, were now members of parliament. People like Humphrey, Laylor, were members of parliament. Could you imagine today if you or I were involved in an armed insurrection against the government? If we weren't shot dead, we'd be you know, in jail for the rest of our lives. But in 1854, the government realised in order to maintain power, it needed to incorporate the rebels into the instruments of government. Not all rebels fell for it. Some did. Others formed an alternative parliament an alternative parliament based on direct democratic principles, the Victorian Land Council, which sat for 10 years in the markets where the old uh, Southern Cross Hotel used to be, at the corner of Exhibition and Burke Street, 50 metres from Parliament House. And it was that interaction between the two parliaments which created that radical milieu. But unfortunately, over the last three to four or five decades, we have seen the principles of the Eureka Rebellion, the essence of the Eureka Rebellion, the radical nature of that rebellion shunted aside. And we've seen various people claim it as their own. Various people. The pillars of the Eureka Rebellion are very simple. Direct democracy, direct action, internationalism, solidarity. Strong pillars, four pillars, which should dictate the type of society we live in. So on the 3rd of December, irrespective of harassment, irrespective of what happens, we celebrate those radical achievements and we and we draw those achievements back into the 21st century. That's what we do. So we encourage you to come and join us. Reclaim the radical spirit of the Eureka Rebellion. It's essentially a political statement. The Eureka Rebellion, there's tons of information about it. But why... Isn't the Eureka flag an official Australian flag? Why doesn't the Ballarat City Council fly the Eureka flag? Why do all the institutions in Ballarat use the Eureka flag to promote their own financial interests? Why isn't this day celebrated for public holiday? Well, it doesn't matter, does it? Because while one of us, one of us goes to Ballarat on the 3rd of December, to reclaim that radical spirit, 
that spirit will remain. So join us next Tuesday, the 3rd of December, 10 a.m., sorry, 4 a.m., 4 a.m. to 10 p.m. Join us at the dinner at the Queen's Head Hotel, 7 p.m. Hear Anthony Cam speak, the manager of the current Eureka Centre, about the plans for the Eureka Centre. Listen to the West Papuan entertainers. West Papuans understand the nature of revolt. Their day is the 1st of December. The Morning Star, their symbol, and the Southern Cross, our symbol, both in the early hours of the morning can be seen together in the sky in this part of the world, in the Southern Hemisphere. You've been listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Hopefully I'll see you down at the Eureka Rebellion celebrations in Ballarat at the at uh, the corner of Stall and Eureka Streets, 4am. If you can't make it, don't despair. You can always listen to the opening ceremony from 4am to 6am, courtesy of Community Radio Station 3CR in Melbourne. And if you're out, elsewhere in Australia, if you wake up at that at 4am, you can listen to it at 3cr.org.au. You've been listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. I've been hosting today's program. Web pages, Joseph Toscano, Toscano for the Public. Interested in the public housing debate, which is beginning to hot up, go to Defend and Extend Public Housing or Public Housing Everybody's Business. Want to join public interest before corporate interests? Shake, rattle the cage. At least rattle the cage before you die, before you're cremated or buried. Rattle the cage. Join public interest before corporate interest. Download the application for pipsy.net. Haven't got a computer? Give us a call. 0439 395 489. 0439 395 489. Give us a call and uh, we'll, um, I'll send you out application forms. Come along. Eureka Rebellion, Reclaim the Radical Spirit, 4am to 10pm. You can't make it this year, make it next year. Next year will be the 19th year we've been holding these celebrations. This year is the 18th year. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. And plug in to the uh, YouTube Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. This week's presentation, which will be up in the next day or two, will be about Eureka. Listen in to the Anarchist World this week, next week on your local community radio station. Don't despair. We can change anything we like as long as we're willing to pay the price. And that's the problem, paying the price when you challenge authority, especially illegitimate authority, which is there to protect its own interests. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. The postal address, Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Listen in next week to the Anarchist World this week on your local Community radio station. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death's construction. 
an analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.